Hi, thanks for being here. Today I'm talking with Dr. Natasha Sumner. She has a doctorate in Celtic languages and literatures. That just sounds so fascinating. She's also an associate professor of Celtic languages and literatures at Harvard University. As you know, I love interviewing scholars, students, academics, amateurs, podcasters, authors, and so many more. And of course, not all the podcast topics here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie. I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. I guess now it's time for some Irish history, eh? Today I'm talking with Dr. Sumner, and I can't wait for her to share about her topic. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. I'm really happy to be here and to share a little bit of my corner of history with you. Yes, and actually we can jump right in and say, you know, who are we talking about today? Okay, so today I want to talk to you about Finn McCool, the greatest Gaelic hero. So the Gaels have a long history, and Gaelic culture is really rich. There has certainly been no shortage of great Gaelic heroes, but what I am going to contend today is that Finn McCool is the greatest Gaelic hero, and I hope by the end of this podcast that you and your listeners are going to agree with me. The first thing I think I should tell you before I tell you who Finn is is who the Gales are, because I bet some of your listeners aren't going to know that. When I say the Gales, I mean the Gaelic-speaking people of Ireland and Scotland, and the Irish and Scottish Gaelic diaspora in Canada, in the U.S., and elsewhere. Gaelic, or, or more specifically Irish and Scottish Gaelic, are closely related languages, and they belong to the Celtic language group. They're essentially the indigenous languages of Ireland and Scotland. Irish and Scottish Gaels are really closely related peoples. And for a long time, they interacted really closely with one another, and they shared many cultural traits because of that close connection, including, and this is the important part, including stories about their shared past. And Finn McCool is a character in the traditional narrative of their shared early history. So now, Finn McCool. The first thing I should tell you about Finn McCool, especially since I just said that he shows up in Gaelic traditional history, is that he never existed. And the second thing I should tell you is that people believed he existed, even as late as the 20th century. Stories about Finn McCool have been circulating for well over a millennium, and they have been really really popular. So, your question, who is Finn McCool? Finn was supposed to have lived in the third century AD. And just to stress this, although he was worked into the traditional historical framework of the Gaelic world, he's not thought to have been a historical person. In the stories, Finn is the leader of a rambling band of warriors called the Fianna. And among his warrior band, the Fianna, are his son, Oshin, his grandson, Oscar, and a whole bunch of other members of his family who collectively are called Clown Buishkna, which means the lineage of Buishkna. Buishkna would be a person in their ancestry. So I'm thinking in particular of people like Finn's nephew, Quilte. Quilt is going to come up in what we're talking about today. And another warrior by the name of Diermund, who's also seen as being part of this family, Clown Buishkna. So that's some of Finn's men. Also among Finn's men are members of another family. And this family is Clown Morna. Um, and they have a historical rivalry with Clown Buishkna. So these include... People like Gaul McMorna, Conan McMorna, Gardy McMorna, and I should tell you Mac means son. So these are all sons of a person by the name of Morna. 
Now this rivalry between the family of Buishkna and the family of Morna, it gets reignited from time to time. So sometimes there's contention within the warrior band, within the Fianna, but usually the Fianna are a united force. And here's what they do. They protect Gaelic territory. And sometimes the people who enter Gaelic territory from external threat. Um, most often the threat has some sort of supernatural component. So it's these characters called the Lochlani who come from a somewhat otherworldly Scandinavia. And they have these super villain-like abilities to match the Fianna's super heroic strength and speed. Um, or else it could be the king of the world or the king of some Eastern realm, always with incredible or barely credible power and this really massive army that needs to be knocked around by the Fianna. So what the Fianna do is they save the day when nobody else can. Or I should say at least they usually do. So that's Finn and the Fianna in a nutshell. So he was not a historical character, as you said. I guess all of this comes from folklore. How do we have, you know, information about mm. who he was? Excellent question. So I said earlier, the stories about Finn and the Fianna have, have been popular. They've really enthralled audiences for well over a millennium. And they turn up in folklore, yes, but also in literature. So I called Finn and the Fianna the greatest Gaelic heroes, or I called Finn the greatest Gaelic hero. The fact that they've been turning up in literature and in folklore for over a millennium, that's no small thing. I think that in itself, the longevity of this tradition might qualify them as the greatest Gaelic heroes. But that's not all. It's at least as significant that these heroes have also made a really substantial cultural impact as well beyond their Gaelic point of origin. And here's another way that they turn up in history. In fact, the names of these Fenian heroes have graced the lips of presidents, of emperors, and of kings. American President Thomas Jefferson found versions of their tales quote, sources of daily and exalted pleasure. Those are his words, not mine. Um, French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte admired essentially their military valor, and he liked to envision himself as a modern Fenian warrior and Napoleon's godson. Napoleon's godson is an interesting guy because Napoleon gave him his name. And the name that Napoleon gave to him was a Fenian name. He became the very first King Oscar of Sweden. Remember Oscar? Oscar is Finn's grandson. So the son of Finn's son, Oshin. So they're turning up throughout history in really interesting, unique ways. It's actually really hard to underestimate just how important Finn McCool and his warrior band the Fianna were historically, even if they themselves were ahistorical, they never existed. So what were, let's say, the grand lines of his story? Does he have a sort of a typical story of what he's done or who he was involved with? Hmm. Okay, so I would say there isn't just one story about him, but many, many stories. These are heroes that have a really, really, really long history in Gaelic culture. These stories about them have been circulating at least since the early stratum of Gaelic literature that we have, probably even earlier. So the very first time Finn turns up in the literary record uh, is in about the seventh century, and it's in some genealogical material about his lineage. So we hear a little bit about where he comes from. But that's about it. For the next couple centuries, he turns up in the manuscripts periodically, and he appears as a leader of a little band of outlaws, and they're kind of living on the margins of society, indeed on the margins of this world and the other world. There's, there's a real sense 
that his liminal social position here as an outlaw operating on the boundary between society and wilderness sometimes gives him a special ability to cross the boundaries between worlds. And in fact, one time in trying to cross that boundary, he actually gains the ability to access otherworldly knowledge. So I'm going to tell you a story here. This is, this is an 8th century story. And in some ways, it's typical. I'll explain that. So Finn and Quilta and Oshin, remember them? These are all members of Clown Buishkna. They're all camped out in the wilderness, and they're cooking their nightly meal, and it's a pig that they're roasting over the fire. And along comes this shadowy figure and steals it right out from under them. And these are great warriors. They should be able to protect their food when they're cooking it. They should be able to catch this shadowy figure that comes and steals it out from under them. So off Ashin goes, and he runs and he runs and he runs, and he can't catch this thief. And he comes back, and he's deflated, and it's awful. The next night, they're cooking their meal, another pig, wild pig, they would have hunted it, and the same thing happens. This shadowy figure comes and steals it, and off he goes. And Quilza goes off running and running and running and running. And if you know any other stories, you know Quilza is supposed to be the fast one. Quilza is the one who should be able to outrun anybody. Can't catch him. So this is just awful. And Finn's kind of thinking, oh man, who are these people I'm associated with? So the next night, the shadowy creature comes again and steals their food, and up Finn goes. He's going to go himself. And he runs, and he runs, and he runs, and he runs. And he catches up to the thief, and he strikes him a death blow just as he's running into his home, his otherworldly abode in the hills in Ireland. There's a door in the hillside, and he's running in. So Finn strikes the death blow right as he's running in, and the door of the abode is closing and Finn gets his thumb slammed in the door to the other world. And what does Finn do? He does exactly what you or I would do if our thumb was slammed in a door. He yanks it back and he puts it in his mouth to soothe it. And as he does that, he gains otherworldly knowledge. So this is, I told you this was sort of typical of the tradition. Finn's thumb of knowledge is actually a distinguishing attribute of his character at every stage in the history of this tradition. And the way he uses this thumb of knowledge is exactly like the first time when he needs access to obscure information. Often when he needs to locate someone, he just puts his thumb in his mouth. He puts it under his tooth. Sometimes he has to chew it a little bit and he gets the knowledge that he's looking for. How's that for a unique superpower? That's actually really interesting. <laughs> it kind of reminds <laughs> me of some Scandinavian folklore tales too, like Sigurd. There seems to be this element of otherworld involved in many of these folklores. Yes, there's a connection of shared story there. Uh, and there probably is a connection with the story of Sigurd that has been explored, but I'm not going to explore today because we'd get too far off topic. But but you're absolutely right. I know your focus is history, and I assume your listeners' focus is history. So I think that you and your listeners might be wondering a little bit about what a great hero is doing, living the life of an outlaw, wandering around the wilderness, hunting for his livelihood. And I want to tell you that it's not actually all that odd if we look at it in its historical context. Let's see how these stories really reflect the society in which they were created. That's, that's a really important aspect of story for me. So it seems that the Fian, we call these the Fianna, they belong to a Fian or a, or a warrior band. It seems like this was a real social institution that young aristocratic men would have participated in um, in the early Middle Ages in Ireland. So we think that when these young men reached the age of majority 
if they hadn't yet come into their inheritance of land, something had to be found for them to do. So what happened was they were expected to go and join a Fian band and go hunting and raiding in frontier lands and cut ties with their family for a while. And this would serve a couple purposes. Young men without a place in society or a, or a productive way to direct their energy can present a danger to society. We see this not just in Gaelic society. Um, think about, for instance, uh, knights in medieval Europe. They didn't yet have a place, so off they went to sort of seek their futures, make a life for themselves, seek their destiny as knights. So similarly, these young men would go off and join a fian and and sort of this arrangement would displace the potential danger that they might pose elsewhere and provide them with a legitimate social role as fiana. One can imagine too that a period of life spent out hunting and raiding would certainly be useful when they come back to society if, for instance, they're ever called to military service to defend their local leader. So that could be beneficial too. Now, this social institution didn't last forever, obviously, or else you and many of your listeners would probably already be familiar with it, and I suspect you're not. Our very last mention of a historical Fenian band, not, not Finn's Fian, but another one, came from the middle of the 9th century. So that's the last time we really hear about this social institution. After that point, Irish society appears to have changed. And interestingly enough, in the stories about Finn McCool, Finn's role also changes. Although Finn and the Fianna didn't exist and the stories about them didn't actually happen, literature tends to reflect the society that created it. If popular characters can't adapt along with society, they cease to be relevant. Finn and the Fianna have been successful for centuries because there's something about them that makes them able to adapt. Now, the first major adaptation happens around the 10th century, and it's a really, really significant one. What happens is Finn teams up with Cormac McArt. Cormac McArt is seen in the traditional narratives as the greatest high king that Ireland ever had. Now, Cormac McArt, I should say, also probably didn't exist, but for centuries he was thought to have existed, and his era is seen as Ireland's golden age, the time when there was peace throughout the land. Crop harvests were great. The weather was great. Everything was good for people in Ireland. And this notion of nature reacting to good judicious rule is a really, really old one in Gaelic tradition, I should add. So Finn teams up with King Cormac in the 10th century. And from then on, he's seen in a growing number of texts as the leader of Cormac's national defense force. So he goes from leading basically a little outlaw band, like we saw when he was camped out and the shadowy figure came to steal his meal. He goes from that to becoming the leader of Cormac's national defense force to, to commanding an entire national army. He becomes, at this point, effectively Ireland's national hero. But interestingly enough, Finn doesn't always get along with Cormac, or later on, he doesn't always get along with Cormac's son, Carjibre. There's some tension here between the ruler of Ireland and the leader of the National Defense Force. And that tension sometimes has to do with Finn's relationship with Cormac's daughters. Ooh. <laughs> So I'm going to tell another another story that's relevant here, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. I love the different iterations of this. So keep going. This is great. <laughs> it's story time with history. So the story of Tochberg Alava, or the wooing of Alava, is the story I want to tell, the relevant one here. Now, Alava is a daughter of King Cormac. And at the opening of the story, we learn that Finn and Cormac are not getting along. There's this feud happening between them. And the reason for the dispute is that Finn was married to Cormac's daughter, Grania, but she left him for Diarmid. 
And so Finn is upset with Grania and with Grania's whole family, it seems. And Cormac sees Finn as a particular threat, not only because Finn is in charge of the army, so, you know, he's got a lot of armed men following him. Also, anybody who Cormac outlawed, Finn's been welcoming him into the ranks and saying, hey, I don't mind. Join me. I don't like Cormac either. <laughs> so this is a pretty volatile situation, and Cormac is anxious to make peace with Finn. And this could go a number of ways, but luckily for Cormac anyways, in this story, they do make peace. What happens is Finn and Grania are legally divorced. Uh, which is a thing that was entirely possible in early medieval Ireland. And all was well, sort of. All was well until Grania's younger sister, Alava, has a dream vision that she should marry Finn. And when this comes out, it, of course, makes Cormac very, very nervous after what happened with Grania. But Alava is really headstrong and she makes her case and we learn quite a bit here in the case that she makes for marrying Finn about the life of the Fianna in, in comparison with the life of an aristocratic woman and um, settled society. So bear in mind that even though Finn, his role has changed, he's become a national militia leader, he still spends most of his time out on the land. He's really not one for creature comforts. So we see continuity as well as change in these stories. So Alava makes this argument to her father and she insists that she'd prefer a transient life in Fian camps in the woods to settled life behind protective ramparts. She'd prefer a bed of moss to a bed of feathers. And she means it. There's a happy ending to this story. Alava and Finn have a chance to talk. And they establish that against all the odds, their personalities really seem to be a good match for one another. And they marry and things apparently go well for them. We're told that they have three children. And I like this story quite a bit because it operates on a different level than most relationships in heroic stories. Often when we're looking at a hero tale, Often a woman or a wife is little more than a status symbol for the male hero, kind of another notch in the belt, another step along his progress to becoming a great hero. And there are certainly plenty of Fenian stories that operate that way. But this story is different. This story speaks both to the possibility of a poor match falling apart and the necessity for a deeper connection to build a fulfilling marriage, particularly one between two people with such different life experiences. So I really like this story quite a bit. Yeah, that's really good. You mentioned how Finn McCool's been around for millennia. Has his story really changed that much? Like you mentioned how it was a little more simple at the beginning, but was there a period where his story was basically the same for, let's say, 100 years? And if so, what were the main lines and sort of where did the changes go? Yeah, absolutely. So, well, that's one major change. One, one major change. He goes from leading this tiny group of outlaws uh, to becoming the leader of basically the national military force. And that's kind of a change in his circumstances. There's another change that happens that really impacts the genre itself, kind of around the beginning of the 12th century, that's when we see the next really major development in Fenian literature. And what happens is a new narrative structure begins to emerge. So some of the stories at that point, instead of taking Finn as the central figure, authors start to use other characters, generally Oshin or Quilta, as the narrators of the story, and they start to situate these narratives differently. So other narratives, the stories that we've talked about so far, have been talking in the present tense about a pre-Christian era. This is the time of heroes. These new ones start to situate their narratives in the Christian era. So here's how that comes about. In these stories, 
Finn and nearly all of his men have fallen as the result of this really long simmering conflict between the Fianna and the High King. And this conflict is generally seen as a result of this overweening pride that the Fianna are said to have developed in their late period. But we know, we've seen from the story about Finn and Alava, that the tension between Finn and the High King actually has pretty deep roots. So at this point in time, the High King is no longer Cormac, but his son Carabre. And Carabre takes really great offense when the Fianna make one last absolutely unreasonable demand and a battle erupts. This is the Fianna's final battle called Ka Gavra, or the Battle of Gavr. And this battle is absolutely devastating for the Fianna. But it's not that great for the High King either. In fact, Finn's grandson Oscar and Carabre mutually kill one another. So that's kind of the backstory. Most of the Fianna are wiped out. However, a couple of the Fianna do survive, and they survive for a very long time, right into the 5th century. Remember, these are 3rd century warriors. They live, a couple of them anyways, Quilza and Oshin, into the 5th century. And in this new stratum of narrative, they tell their stories of their past heroism to St. Patrick. Now, St. Patrick, of course, is known in the popular historical record as the person who brought Christianity to Ireland and ended the wild pagan era of the early heroes. Yes, and he got rid of the snakes. <laughs> yes, and got rid of the snakes, banished all of the snakes from Ireland, which is 100% historically factual, right? <laughs> No, once again, we know that, that traditional history is not always entirely accurate. St. Patrick was a real person, of course. He was an important missionary in Ireland. He was not the first Christian missionary in Ireland, and Ireland never had snakes to begin with. So to get back to the Fianna, now the piece de résistance of this new form of Fenian storytelling is called Agalov Nishenorach, or the conversation of the old men. And of course, having survived two centuries, Quilta and Oshin would be old men. This was written sometime around the turn of the 13th century. And the Yagalov is a really lengthy text. It's actually probably novel length, the longest early medieval Gaelic work of fiction. Um, but it's not much like a novel. It's it's kind of more of a compendium of contemporary Fenian lore organized within a frame tale of a conversation between St. Patrick and these ancient Fenian survivors, Ashin and Quilta, as they travel around Ireland. And they travel around and the landscape evokes different narratives of their past life. Now, if I were to go through all of the stories of the Agalov with you today, we'd be here, well, longer than today. So I'm not going to, but I will tell you that this dialogue format that has emerged was really, really popular. And it was also used in a lot of much shorter compositions that emerged around the same time that we often call Fenian lays. You may have heard uh, that word before. Lays are basically narrative poems. And the Fenian lays are kind of a unique thing, because while they always tell a story, they pretty much never tell the whole story. So, for example, a Fenian lay might start out with Oshin and St. Patrick arguing back and forth about which is better, the religious life of a monk, St. Patrick, or the glorious life of a warrior, Oshin, Finn. And then Patrick will ask a leading question like, hey, Oshin, when did the Fianna fall? And then Ashin's going to tell a stylized snippet in poetic form of the story of the Battle of Gavr. That's an example of a Fenian lay. So essentially, these Fenian lays presuppose that the audience already knows the frame story about the Fianna's final battle and the survival of Ashin and Quilza into St. Patrick's time and the fact that Oshin is having this conversation with St. Patrick. So that's how deeply embedded at this point in time the Fianna are in Gaelic culture. You really have to already have a base of knowledge about them to fully understand a lot of the literature about them, certainly to understand uh, the popular Fenian lays. 
And the other thing that starts to become popular, and I mean like really, really popular in the medieval period, is another type of literature, another different type of literature, um, long prose tales. Now, these are these are not quite as long as the Agalov, which we talked about a minute ago, but they're often longer than, say, a short story. Maybe think like novella length. And these are different from the Agalov and the Fenian Lays in that they don't use this dialogue format we were just talking about to tell events that happened in the past. Rather, much like the early medieval stories that we talked about earlier, they keep that pre-Christian heroic era setting. So they're set in Finn's time, not in St. Patrick's time. And they tell about adventure and magic. They tell about vanquishing foes, about rescuing damsels in distress, about defending Ireland from invasion. And in these respects, they echo the medieval romances really popular throughout Europe at that time, including throughout Ireland. And by romances here, I don't mean, you know, boy meets girl story. I mean, these medieval stories about adventure, going off on quests, and seeking your fortune and coming back a hero. But even though they're kind of like the medieval romances that are popular all throughout Europe, they're not just copycat romances. Remember, this is already a really long narrative tradition. By, say, the 15th or 16th century, when these long prose tales are really taking off, really getting to be super popular, we've already got 900 or a thousand years of Fenian literature in the manuscript record. I've already gone through about a thousand years of Fenian literature. Just let that sink in. That is a lot of pre-existing narrative to draw on. So it's not surprising that we see echoes of much earlier tales in these long, we'll call them Fenian romance texts. For example, remember the story about Finn and Cormac's daughter, Alava? Remember the tension between Finn and Cormac at the beginning of that story when Cormac's daughter, Grania, left Finn for Diarmid? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, so around the 14th century, someone decided to take that story and look at it from Diarmid's perspective. And they worked it up into a long Fenian romance, and they changed some of the details as they did that. So in this later, much more popular version of the story called Toriacht Yermada Agus Grania, The Pursuit of Dirmid and Grania, Alava doesn't play any part. There's no mention of her. This is not a story about Alava. It's a story about Dirmid, Grania, Finn, and it's a love triangle. So we learn at the beginning of the story that Finn was previously married, but his wife died uh, some time ago, and he's lonely. He's ready to find another spouse. And so some of his men suggest to him, hey, you know, the High King's daughter, Grania, she might be suitable. And Finn, he hums and haws, and he says, yeah, 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 she's a catch. Um, but he's reluctant to go and ask for her hand himself because, once again, he and Cormac have not been getting along. So what happens is some of his men go ahead and they feel things out. They try to arrange this match for him. Now, Cormac is initially kind of doubtful about, you know, about this situation because Grania has refused an awful lot of offers of marriage already, but he says, okay, my daughter should make up her own mind. And to the surprise of absolutely everyone, Grania does not refuse the match. So a date is set for the wedding, well, the wedding feast, the betrothal feast at any rate, and Finn's men go back and tell him the good news. And of course, Finn's really happy about this, but Grania has a secret. It seems that Grania is secretly in love with Dermot after seeing him once out of her window playing a game of hurling. Hurling is kind of like shinny, like, like pickup hockey. He was playing a game with the other Fianna and she saw him and she just went, oh yeah, that's the one. And so for her, this is her chance to get near him. 
And sure enough, when the day of the feast arrives, she has a plan. She decides she's going to put a sleeping potion into all of the drinks of everybody except a few key Fianna members, Dermud, Ashin, Quilta. So she does this, and she places Dermud under Gassa to elope with her. And Gassa is a Gaelic word meaning essentially binding injunctions. It's really incredibly dishonorable to go against Gassa, and it can even be dangerous. There's kind of a, a sense of magic worked into it. So Dermot's in a really bad situation. Ashin and Quilza agree that he can't dishonor himself by breaking the Gassa, and it could be dangerous. So at this point, against his wishes, he and Grania sneak off in the dead of night. And when Finn wakes up and he finds out about this, he's understandably pretty furious because this is really embarrassing. He's been dishonored. As far as he's concerned, his betrothed was stolen from him on what was to be his wedding night, basically. So Finn is out for blood. Finn summons the Fianna together and they pursue Dermot and Grania all throughout the country. And we hear all about their adventures. Now, to make a long story short, Dermot is the better warrior. And Dermot and Grania manage to evade the Fianna for so long that they eventually decide it's better to just reach a settlement. And Dermot and Grania get a plot of land and they settle down and they live happily together for many years. But the situation doesn't last forever. So the time comes when their daughter is seeking a husband. And Grania thinks, hmm, this is probably a good time to reconcile with the rest of the Fianna. And maybe if we invite them all over for a feast, we just might find a suitable husband for our daughter. So Dermot agrees to this and they invite Finn and his men over to a feast. Now for Finn, this dredges up old feelings of resentment and he decides that he's going to get his revenge. And in the tragic end to the tale, after the Fianna show up and they're there for a little while, Dermot is tricked into joining a hunt for a boar that unbeknownst to him is fated to kill him and it mortally wounds Dermid just as Dermid strikes the death blow to the boar so the boar's dead Dermid's laying dying but there's still hope he reminds Finn hey Finn you know there's a healing well nearby and Finn if you were to bring me water in your own hands I would survive. Remember, Finn's hands are really special. They're really special because of his contact with the other world. So Finn can access knowledge through his thumb. And there's also this notion that if he's carrying water to Dermid, Dermid would heal from this mortal wound. So Finn has a change of heart and he says, okay, okay, I can't let you die. He goes to the well and he picks up the water in his hands and he starts back, but all of a sudden, what happened with Dermot and Grania comes into his head, and he can't do it, and he lets the water slip through his fingers. And this happens three times. And the third time, by the time he gets back, Dermot is dead. And that's the tragic end of the story. So what do you think? A good story? It's definitely interesting. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> if I'd file that under a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, tragic ending. Um, but I think it's I think it's one of the best stories. And it was pretty popular. There were a number of other stories as well. Basically, from the 13th to the 18th centuries, Finn and the Fianna were the dominant topic of secular narrative in the Gaelic world. Every Gael knew who Finn and the Fianna were, knew stories about Finn and the Fianna. And I haven't really talked to this point about Scotland, which you're probably uh, a little bit upset about because I know how much you like Scotland. <laughs> yeah, you do have an advantage to knowing me a little bit. I do love Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> Scottish Gales absolutely knew who Finn and the Fianna were, and they told stories about them. In fact, one very influential family, the Campbells, actually claimed descent from Dermid, they called themselves Sheel Yermid, the progeny of Dermid. 
And there's a Scottish lay about the death of Dermid that situates the boar hunt in Scotland. So in the Irish, the long Irish story, of course, it's situated in Ireland. But in the Scottish lay, it's in Scotland. It's in Perthshire. So the Fianna belonged as much to Scotland as to Ireland. And it's really important that I point this out now, given the next stage in the history of the Fenian tradition. And that happens in the mid-18th century. The Fianna underwent another change. And really, I think the most radical one yet. You were asking about how their stories change. This is a big one. And it's all because of a gale by the name of James McPherson. Have you heard of James McPherson? The name is familiar, but it does sound like a classic Scottish Gaelic name. <laughs> well, you'll know about him in a few minutes, I tell you. So this was this is the mid-18th century. Uh, it was a particularly troubling time for Scottish Gaels. There had been half a century or so of periodic Jacobite uprisings to try and reinstall what was seen as a more amenable monarch to the Gaels, to the throne. Uh, and these were the Stuart monarchs who had Scottish Gaelic roots. The, the, the last one you will know of, Bonnie Prince Charlie. This had all come to a head uh, in the Battle of Culloden in 1746, which was a disastrous loss to the Jacobites and basically spelled the end of the traditional Gaelic power structures in Highland Scotland. That's that's a really hugely oversimplified summary, um, but that's not my topic today, maybe at a future point. So what matters to us in all this is kind of incredible amount of ill will toward Highland Gaels at the time. There was really rampant anti-Gaelic prejudice and a real feeling that Gaelic culture was in jeopardy. And this began to inspire some people to start taking down some of the oral poetry and song that people entertained themselves with to preserve it on paper for posterity, just in case it didn't survive. And a lot of Fenian lays circulated this way, passed from person to person orally. They were sung. And some of the earliest oral collections of Fenian lays that we have come from this period of Scottish history. Now, James McPherson also started jotting down Fenian lays, not, not with any publication purpose in mind, but he told a friend about them, a non-Gale, a, a lowland Scot. And his friend was really interested, and he asked, hey, can you share some translations? And he did, and this was the beginning of something big. With a bit of prompting, McPherson published a little collection of his translations, and people went wild. They loved them. This was a time when Homer's Iliad and Odyssey had recently been discovered and translated, and people were kind of obsessed with the inspired artistic productions of quote-unquote primitive ancient societies. And here it seemed to them that kind of similarly ancient poetry about a band of third century Gaelic warriors might have been produced right there in Scotland. So people really wanted more of this. So what happens is funds were raised and Macpherson was sent on a tour of the Highlands to collect manuscripts and he also jotted down oral lays at this time. And he eventually came out with two big long epics, collectively known as Ossian, that were basically the best sellers of the 18th century. Everybody read them. They were translated into multiple languages. Napoleon carried his copy with him to battle. Thomas Jefferson raved about them. Remember, I, I quoted Thomas Jefferson at the beginning of this. Everyone seemed to love James McPherson's versions of the Fianna. Just about everyone, I should say. Have you ever heard of the Ossianic controversy? Yeah, the word Ossian definitely sparks something, but that's not my time period, unfortunately. So <laughs> I would love it if you could clarify that for sure. Yeah, I would say that for some time, it wasn't the most fashionable period in history to look at, but in literary history, I should say, but it's actually... It was a very important controversy. Like I said, these were huge bestsellers. 
So the Oceanic Controversy has a little bit to do with a fellow by the name of Samuel Johnson. Samuel Johnson was a very influential English lexicographer and literary critic in sort of the later 18th century. And he did not buy what Macpherson was selling. Macpherson claimed to be a translator of ancient Gaelic poetry. Johnson, on the other hand, claimed that Scottish Gaelic had not been a written language for more than, say, a hundred years, and that nothing could survive in oral tradition for so many centuries. Now, in fact, Johnson was, was both wrong and right. Johnson didn't understand some things. He didn't understand that learned Scottish Gaels, being part of the wider Gaelic world, had for centuries participated in the same academic culture as Ireland. In fact, some of their writings and manuscripts are really indistinguishable from Irish Gaelic. But he was right that Macpherson didn't simply translate what he found word for word. In fact, what Macpherson did was piece together and adapt and, and refashion the heroic tales and lays about Finn and the Fianna into the two long epics that he published. And so some of the names in the Fenian tradition were modified to appeal to an English-speaking audience. Finn became, in Macpherson's versions, Fingal. Uh, Oshin became Oshin, which actually sounds pretty close to the Scottish Gaelic pronunciation, Oshin. One of the enemies who comes to attack the Fianna, and Darig Mord, or the Great Red One, becomes Dargo. So, so you can kind of see how this goes. And Macpherson took the stories and he reworked them, melding them together and adding and filling here and there and elevating the mood to suit 18th century Anglophone tastes. And he did so, I think, for a couple of reasons. I think at least at first that he bought into the then current philosophical idea that certain quote unquote primitive societies would be likely to produce epic poetry, and that such poetry would have looked and sounded a certain way, and that the Fenian lays circulating in the highlands could very well be um, degenerated versions of, of early epic poetry. Now, we know that's not the case with the benefit of studying Irish manuscripts, but he couldn't have known that. So he could have legitimately thought that at first sight, not having put in a ton of research or having the ability to do so. Now, I think at first he set out to essentially restore an ancient lost epic that he truly believed had existed. And I think it probably became clearer by, at least by his second epic, that that was not the case. But by then he'd found really great success in adapting Fenian lore. And really his epics brought a lot of positive attention to his people and his culture. And remember that uh, positive attention was kind of hard to come by in the mid-18th century to Scottish Gaelic culture. Um, now, as a result of, of Oshian, the world was celebrating Scottish Gaelic traditions, even if they were adaptations rather than direct translations. Now, there's an awful lot more that could be said about this controversy, about what Macpherson did, and I'm not really interested in that, um, because I'm interested in the Gaelic tradition more so uh, than anything. So when we talk about the 18th century, has there been any other changes more in the modern folklore? You know, have we adapted it yet again, or are we looking backwards and trying to find the, let's see, the original source and reworking from there? Mm-hmm. I mean, as I think maybe is becoming clear, even when we're not talking about looking to, say, an entirely new market outside of the original market, Gales, the stories are constantly, constantly adapting. And really, I think from the 18th century on, we, we still continue to see adaptations. But I think what I want to get into is how these stories went from kind of 18th century pop culture in the form of Macpherson's Ossian to 20th century pop culture. And they absolutely do exist in different forms in 20th century pop culture. 
So there is this big oceanic controversy and and that controversy over what in fact McPherson had done raged on and on in primarily academic realms for centuries, literally centuries. People are still writing about this. But the public couldn't get enough of his oceanic epics. And they had a ripple effect in Ireland, too. And this really takes us into the final stage of the history of the Fenian tradition. The Irish were not big fans of Macpherson's Ossian, largely because of one thing. Macpherson claimed that Finn and the Fianna were Scottish warriors. And he claimed further that Ireland had stolen the stories and adapted them from Scotland. So in the late 18th and the 19th century, partly in response to the Ossianic controversy, Irish academics set about exploring their own Gaelic manuscripts and proving to the world that the earliest records of the Fianna were in Irish manuscripts, which situated the tales in that nation and not in Scotland. So this was a fight for ownership of the Fenian corpus. And as decade after decade passed, more and more Fenian literature managed to find its way into print. And toward the end of the 19th century, the Fianna found themselves entangled in a new struggle. So we're kind of, we've emerged from the Oceanic controversy and something else is kind of coming on the horizon and driving this interest in Fenian narrative. And that's the fight for Irish nationhood. So this was a period of heightened cultural nationalism, not just in Ireland, but all across Europe. Nations so defined by a shared culture and language were, were really pushing for self-determination. Ireland had been without its own parliament since 1801, and many people thought that it was time for this state of affairs to change. Ireland was a nation with its own language, its own illustrious history, and its own heroes. And among those heroes, of course, were Finn and the Fianna. Now, as, as Irish language courses sprang up across the nation, because, of course, remember, Ireland has its own language, language societies like the Gaelic League began publishing textbooks, and they began publishing reading materials. And many of the stories of the Fianna, the, the defenders of Ireland, turn up in these Gaelic League publications. Now, in the 20th century, as tensions grew, they turn up again in other places. So the revolutionary leader, Patrick Pierce, started his own boys' school, uh, and he gave it a motto that was drawn from Fenian tradition. And so the motto for Patrick Pierce's boys' school was, Nyarts in our love of Virginia in our thing of August Glunya in our grieve, strength in our hands, truth on our lips, and cleanness in our hearts. This is really interesting because this phrase first turns up in Ogle of Nishenorach, remember back from turn of the 13th century, but we also find it in the Fenian Lays, where I assume Pierce probably encountered it. And Pierce also wrote and had his boys perform plays based on Fenian stories, and he edited Fenian texts for learners to read. And around this same time, too, a boys club was started as an alternative to the English Boy Scouts. So why should Irish boys be taught uh, to be good little English boys? No, they should taught to be, you know, good little Irish boys. And this boys club was called Nafiana Erin, the Fianna of Ireland. There was actually a Fianna branch at Pierce's school. So the Fianna by this point in time was really worked into the fabric of what it meant to be Irish. They'd become a symbol of Irishness along with a whole bunch of other aspects of Irish traditional culture. So if we skip ahead into the mid 20th century, because I want to get us to pop culture, the mid 20th century, independence has been won and the Fianna are introduced into the educational system. They form part of the Irish cultural material uh, that gets introduced into school textbooks. Tales about the Fianna get taught to students from their earliest years, really. And outside of school, too, hundreds 
of children's stories based on their exploits have been published uh, in the past hundred years. Indeed, the long prose story of Dermot and Grania that we heard um, not too long ago, that is still an exam text uh, on the upper level Irish curriculum. So today, you can ask any person who Finn McCool is, and I bet they will be able to tell you. They have heard about Finn McCool since their earlier days. And the Fianna also turn up in pop culture, here we are, in some really interesting ways. Uh, for instance, a few years ago, there was a feature film, a movie adaptation of uh, the story of Dermot and Grania. This was titled Pursuit, and it starred Liam Cunningham as Finn and also Brendan Gleeson. It was interesting. I think that to really appreciate it, you probably had to read or hear the story of Dermot and Grania, the traditional one, first. But I quite liked it having already had that background. And like I said, every Irish person knows that story. There's also a really excellent Irish language graphic novel about the pursuit of Dermot and Grania called Entoriacht. So if you know or learn some Irish, I would suggest checking that out because it's really, really well illustrated. And still on the theme of Dermot and Grania, an American author by the name of Megan Chance a few years back wrote a young adult series of novels called the Fianna Trilogy. This is based on the, the Dermot and Grania story, but set in 19th century New York in the background of the Fenian uprisings, which I didn't have time to get into, but uh, the name that the Irish Republican Brotherhood took in America, the Fenian Brotherhood, was absolutely based on the Fianna. So that's a really, really interesting adaptation that I quite like. Also in North America, uh, you might have come across a pub franchise called Finn McCool's. I think, I think there's one in Toronto's Pearson Airport, um, which I suppose none of us is likely to visit anytime soon. I also found out just the other day that there's actually an Irish WWE wrestler who calls himself Finn Balor after Finn McCool and another character from early Irish history. So that's like weird, but true. And there's a beer in Scotland called Oshian, which is actually pretty good, I think. So you can kind of see pop culture echoes of the Fianna all over the place if you start to look around. So what do you think? Is, is Finn Ireland's greatest hero? I think he probably is Ireland's greatest hero because he's <laughs> definitely lasted this long and is just everywhere. I mean, pretty much everybody's heard the name, even if they don't know who he is. Now, the funny thing is, he's Ireland's greatest hero because you don't have this push for nationhood in Scotland in the same way that you had in Ireland. If you ask any random Scottish person who Finn McCool is, I'm not sure you'll get the same reaction as you would uh, if you asked an Irish person. So I'm going to say that, of course, Finn is the greatest Gaelic hero. But in modern times, he is certainly more associated with Ireland. Although, stories about Finn McCool have been, have been collected from Scottish Gaels in Nova Scotia, in Canada. So if you talk to Scottish Gaels, if you talk to Gaelic speakers, they'll know who he is. Yeah, well, I think the language is tied to a lot of the folklore in any culture. So I could see that for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. You were so excited right off the bat, I actually forgot to ask you a question. Um, how did you get involved with Finn McCool or even the Irish Gaelic culture? Oh, absolutely. So I got involved with Finn McCool and with Irish Gaelic culture at St. Francis Xavier University in Nova Scotia. Um, I've really been chasing after these stories since I was first introduced to them in an undergraduate folklore class taught by the late, great Professor Ken Nilsson. Professor Nilsson really, really brought Finn to life for me and set me on this path. And now I, I try to do the same for my students and I hope that I've been able to communicate that as well to you. Oh, I think so. I mean, your passion is extremely evident and you can see that 
you're just fascinated by all of his stories. It's fantastic. I, I'm so happy you said you'd come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> um, I guess you are also Canadian as I am. Yes, I am. You had a pretty funny story about growing up in Canada, if you don't mind sharing. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, you asked me funny unknown fact about me, and I said, well, here's a funny unknown fact about me. When I, I grew up on a farm in Saskatchewan, um, and we had a garter snake den in our yard growing up, and I always used to like the garter snakes, watching the garter snakes emerge in the spring. It was really a sign that spring had come. Uh, and when I was little, <laughs> I used to try to catch them. My mother never used to particularly appreciate when I'd try to bring snakes in the house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most moms don't like that. Yeah, well, I mean, she liked the snakes, just not in the house. This came to mind, actually, because a couple weeks ago, she sent me a photo uh, of one of the snakes having emerged that she saw on one of her daily walks, just to say, hey, look, it's spring here. So that was really nice. Yeah, that is very nice. That's a great story. And I like to ask this question. So if you had a time machine, <laughs> I know many historians dread this question, <laughs> but if you had a time machine, what would be the thing that you would like to partake in or the person you'd like to meet or whatnot? Of course, you're safe and the sanitary conditions are fine. You're not going to catch anything. <laughs> so sort of what would be the thing you would like to find out more about with your time machine? Oh, gosh. I can only use it once. I'm not sure that it's possible to pick a favorite time period because I work um, across so many time periods. Okay, I, I can think of a couple things. It would be really interesting to go and hang out with James McPherson and find out what actually he, he really did think because we can try to piece it together looking at his cultural milieu, uh, thinking about his possible influences, looking at what he wrote. Um, but it would be kind of interesting to talk to him and see his take on his project. It would also be really interesting, I think, to go back to early medieval Ireland because I told some of the stories, but an awful lot hasn't survived. For an awful lot, we just have snippets, references. As I said, Particularly we get, when we get into circa, you know, 12th century when the Fenian lays are starting to emerge, they start kind of in medias race. They, they start in the middle and give you a snippet and not the whole picture. So there are so many references to things that we don't necessarily know about that don't always pop up in other uh, records of the Fenian literary tradition. So it would be really cool to hang out in early medieval Ireland and listen to some of the stories they have and see if they fill in some of the gaps in the record today. I think that would be really cool. Yeah, and I'm even thinking back to those times, you were saying how they might have been songs. It'd be great to hear what kind of musicality they were putting to these stories too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, we have I mean, we, we have actually in the folklore record, I didn't talk a lot about the folklore record, but there are over 3000 examples of um, Fenian orally collected stories and songs and, and little bits of lore um, that I've actually cataloged based on work that many other people uh, also contributed to. And we have recordings of Fenian lays and they kind of, they can vary from chants, kind of sounds a little bit like a, I don't know, almost monastic in a way, to songs with actual tunes. And I would sing one if, if I were in any way, shape or form musical, but I'm not. But it would be really interesting to find out if they're always like that, if there was a different quality to them, were they always chants and songs with tunes? Did the tunes change? Were there no tunes? Were they, for instance, like other uh, medieval poetry, were they perhaps recited with a harp in the background? These are things that 
uh, we can guess at, we can make very educated guesses about, but we don't really know. Hence the time machine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, I want to officially again thank you very much for coming on and convincing us that Finn McCool's the greatest Irish slash Gaelic hero. So thank you so very much for coming here and talking to me. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And I hope that people get interested in Gaelic folklore, Irish and Scottish Gaelic folklore and the literary tradition and learn the same love for it that I think I have and you have. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much again, Dr. Sumner. Well, I think that was a very compelling argument. And I think Finn McCool definitely is pretty cool. Yes, I went there. <laughs> Thank you again, Dr. Sumner. That was so informative. And I really appreciate how you compacted so much historical data. So it's a little more bite-sized for people who might not be aware of Finn McCool. As for book recommendations, Dr. Sumner sent me a small list. She says that the most authoritative overview of Oceanic lore is actually from 1955 with Gerald Murphy's book, The Oceanic Lore and Romantic Tales of Medieval Ireland. There's also a few books that are slightly more recent. There's a short introduction by Dr. Joseph Flahive titled The Fenian Cycle in Irish and Scots Gaelic Literature. And there's also a book by Prof. Kevin Murray that focuses specifically on the early medieval Fenian literature. And that one is called The Early Finn Cycle. Dr. Sumner is also working on her own book that's coming out within a year or two. And the book has a tentative title of Heroes of the Gale, A History of Finn and Fianna. I'll make sure to put this information on the blog post and hopefully I can find the link for some of these books. Of course, there will be information on the website so you can find me historya.com. You can also find me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at historya or at historya.podcast. All the efforts you put into rating the podcast on your podcasting platform helps people find me. So I appreciate the time and effort you take in doing so. And of course, I want to thank my husband, Jamie, and our brood of kids, our family, our friends, the teachers I've had throughout this process. Without you, I definitely wouldn't be adventuring through history. Un grand merci.